in terms of supply chain issues, like... If anything, and another positive is that chefs have had to become more creative. They can't just grab what used to be readily available. Today on Dirty Linen, we are heading across the country to Perth. We are talking to Chef Justin Wong, who is at Vinotto in Swanbourne. Justin, welcome to Dirty Linen. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's great to have you here. Um, it's been a while since we've been over to Perth, and I just want to give an initial shout-out to Max Feenhausen, who gave me you. He dobbed you in, basically, Justin. I said, I need some cool Perth people to speak to, and he said, uh, I should speak to you. So are we happy or sad about Max's dobbing you in? He threw me under the bus, did he? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I've got, I've got a couple of things on him, so we can look at no. <laughs> um, no, very grateful, actually. So Max is a um, food journo. He's re- pretty up with what's happening all around the country, but um, definitely a Perth expert living over there. Um, Justin, give us a little bit of insight into you and what you're doing. Um, tell us about Vinotto and what took you there. Uh, Vinotto is a new wine bar uh, in Swanbourne, which for those of East is uh, out in the bur- not out in the burbs. It's on the train line, but it's um, uh, not in the city, uh, which is half of what led me there. Um, obviously, COVID in the last bit uh, in Perth, you know, we've been pretty much safe for a long time. But, yeah, the start of this year, the... CBD has been hit so hard, and you know, no, everyone's working from home. And yeah, all the all the venues in, in town have been doing it real tough. Um, that was one of the things that that led me there. Um, yeah, in that, I think everything a, a small fifty-five seat venue in the suburb is kind of like I think what people are wanting at the moment. Um, and we found that we've been open like five weeks, and it's been gone to gangbusters. Well, that's good to hear. And what kind of work have you been doing until now? Uh, I have. I'm the accidental chef. I've worked. I was a 19 and I washed dishes as a part-time job at uni. And then I finished uni once and then I was like, oh, maybe I'll continue cooking. And I did that for a little bit. And then, then I thought, oh, but I know I life does not hospital. So then I went back to uni and didn't do anything with the second one either. And then I don't know, it was about like... 28, 29, I realised, oh, I've been working casuals for far too long. I should get serious about this. Um, but, yeah, in the last bit, I've done everything from um, Middle Eastern to Mediterranean to um, Italian food. Um, yeah, that's about it, really. Um, I don't know. I don't think I can – well, there was a chef once who um, – so, basically, I, I did a journalism um, – Masters for my second stint, and I was doing that a little bit like at the same time as working casual in some restaurants. And one day, one chef said to me, and "Goes, Jazzy, when are you going to realise you're a chef for life?" And yeah, now I'm set to and have lower back issues, so I guess I'm a chef for life. <laughs> I can't believe you've got a masters in journalism. I mean, should you be interviewing me? No, no, no. I'm not very good on the other side. <laughs> We already, I already figured that out. I took, it took most of my twenties to figure that out. <laughs> That's so interesting, and you know, of course, it is so interesting to hear you touch on the fact that COVID has sort of hit WA in twenty twenty two. I mean, obviously, you did have your initial lockdown. Well, you, you know, you, you do know, you do know, we get everything later than everyone else. Well, I like mean, like fashion and the, and dawn <laughs> and dusk. But, um, yes, and dawn. Yes. And daylight savings. <laughs> yeah. Well, tell us um, 
I mean, what is that like? I have to say, you know, I was almost frightened for WA to reopen, you know, to finally, I guess, accept that COVID was was going to leak its way in. Um, what has it been like? You know, when um, for ages, I, I, I wonder whether it was for you guys, like McGowan said, February 4th, February 4th, that was the date. That was, you know, everyone said that was what it was going to be. And the fact that it got pushed back to a month, I would say saved all of us because we were not, none, of, none of us, not, none of the venues in town were ready for, you know, people to come in and, and the restrictions to come into place. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, feel like, I feel like we've had a, yes, obviously everyone has taken a hit, but I can think about over East and I obviously we've had it better than most. Well, you've certainly been insulated, but it is so weird to think that as we were, I guess, opening up and we felt like we were, you know, quote unquote, getting our freedoms, that you were actually entering restrictions. So as WA opened up, then you had your capacity restrictions, you had QR code, um, yeah, um, square meter rules, which were the kind of things that we were, you know, unshackling ourselves from. But at the same time, you were implementing them. It must have been, I mean, what was, what's it been like? It was it was quite strange. We had um, obviously once the borders opened, had a, a, um, a fair few friends come and visit from Melbourne, and we were out for breakfast one morning, and I was like, "Oh yeah, so you got to wear your mask, and like the minute you get a glass of water, you can take your mask off." Uh, and then my mate was like, "I was like, oh, you got to scan in the front, and then you got to get rid of your, um, you know, vac certificate." And he goes to me, he goes, "What the?" the QR code doesn't link to the VAX certificate. I was like, nah. He was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and then I realised, oh, over East, it does. Oh, Matt, geez, you didn't, ha- you didn't have enough time to figure that one out over there in WA? Oh, yeah, I don't know. I think, I think the whole thing is that we take our time over here. Um, no, I found it, well, to be honest, so we, Venado's only like, I think we're in our fifth week of trade and it was only last week that we, with the square metre changes that we got to go to capacity. We only have 55 seats. And for the first four weeks of trade, the minute it it hits 37 seats, we can't let anyone else in. But, but, how many people can go to the footy? Like everyone? Well, yeah, yeah. The whole thing is that, oh, you know, because of the arbitrary nature of the law, it really affects, you know, small to medium-sized hospitality venues. They take so much of a hit of what you can do, and then, but all of a sudden, you can have thirty thousand people, or however many people went to the Frio game, and it's just, I don't know, a bit of a double standard. Yeah, well, there's a lot of things I don't like about that Frio game, mostly the result, but um, <laughs> apart, <laughs> apart from that. Um, Let's talk about some of the other issues that I guess, you know, are a part of this whole COVID journey. And I know supply chain issues are something that um, have been impacting you. Do you want to um, tell us how how you've been affected by um, shipping and supply? Oh, it's just, um, you know, you want to, I don't know, a lot of just try to be as seasonal as possible and, you know, use things that, are, you, that you would say, Currently, at this time of year, there is plentiful of, you know, but I wouldn't put something on and then I know it's out of season, but I know you can get it from somewhere else. And then it turns out at some point you can only get grapefruits coming in from Egypt or asparagus coming in from Chile. Um, you know, my current bosses uh, uh, run like three or four or 
have a roastery and three or four cafes. And, you know, they've been talking about how hard it is for um, green to get here from overseas and then green to get here. Sorry, green to get to Australia from overseas and then for that green to get over to Perth from interstate. And how and and why people are like you know it's going to be no surprise that the the, the average price of a cup of coffee is going to go up by the end of the year. Like it's just you can't there there are there are things there are certain things you can't you you can't not pass on to the final consumer. Yeah, I mean, so when you say green, you're talking about green coffee beans, which your your um, people roast and and t- yeah, to eventually turn into a cup of coffee. I mean, what do you what do you think about these supply chain issues? I mean, apart from you know the fact of them, does it make you want to look more locally for ingredients? I mean, what what does it you know what does it make you think about? Not just that. I I, I almost think that because it's uh, what, what I find is is when it finally gets to the consumer and the consumer can't understand why. And it's, I think it's just a bit more education is required in terms of saying, well, actually it's really hard to get certain things at the moment. Like really, really hard. Not least that train track broke down and that screwed everything. (laughs) Yeah. That's, I mean, Perth is pretty isolated. Um, So, I mean. There was a week, there was a week like no one could get eggs. Like no one could get eggs. It was impossible to get eggs. It was crazy. I guess, you know, if in so many different ways, we people in all places have thought about the supply chain, you know, in ways that have been unusual in the past. You know, we're so used to abundance and everything being available all the time. I mean, do you see any any positives to this, this kind of disruption? Oh, positive, yeah. People, um, I, th- I think I've noticed at least personally with friends of mine, like everyone's, everyone's starting to grow more of their own veg. I think that can only be a positive. Yeah, absolutely. And what about prompting co- those kinds of conversations with customers, whether it's about the price of a cup of coffee or the fact that, you know, you don't have the grapefruit because you didn't want to get it from Egypt. Do you think that it's prompting those sorts of conversations? I think so. I, I, I'd like to think so. Um, yeah, I, I hope that as a result of this, um, there'd be a lot more yeah, discerning discussion over it, I, I reckon. Like as as an as as an example, like last year, I um, every two weeks I'd go to the one of the big Chinese shops in Northbridge to to get all my like Southeast Asian ingredients, and um, I couldn't get Kewpie. Like I, like there was they were sold out of Kewpie there, and then I went to another place and there was no Kewpie at all, um, and I had to buy Japanese mayonnaise that was made in Korea and it just like I opened it and I was like I don't know how I feel about it so I opened it and I had to add sugar syrup because it just didn't taste right (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean I've had that myself just you know buying food from the local supermarket whether it's something like normally I'd buy a 300 mil container of something and I could only get it in two liters and it just like you had to be really adaptable but like why didn't you just go okay fine I'm just gonna make my own QP Oh, oh yeah, no, that's a that's a that's a that's a story for another time. That's that's a whole podcast about about why why I have to use my own pasteurized eggs. Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, that's another yeah. story. Um, what I want okay. I was going to quickly say as well, though, like in terms of um, supply chain issues, like I don't know, it it's almost like. Yeah, if, if, if anything, and another positive is that, you know, chefs have had to become more creative. They can't just 
grab what they know is readily, what used to be readily available. Yeah. What, so what kinds of, I guess, thought processes or actions would chefs perhaps take? I don't know, just being more aware of, um, you know, having to be more malleable with your menu planning, I guess. Um, something that's not always seasonal can't really be seasonal. Like we had a real bad time uh, about a month ago, like the tomatoes came real late and then tomato, and then because of that, the season was so short. Um, yeah, I don't know. I found it particularly hard catching up with autumn here. I don't know, that's a bit of an obtuse statement, but um, in terms of, yeah, coming up with something that's going to reflect the season, right? Um, but, you know, at, over east, did you guys have this whole, like, uh, panic buying and no toilet paper in the shops? Yeah, so we've had that, and that's fine. Like, I, I can deal with that because I don't use much toilet paper. I don't, think people sh- I don't think people in general should use that much toilet paper. I don't think you need to. But one day I went to the freezer and there were no frozen peas, and I was like, oh, my God, the world is ending. <laughs> we've all got the things that we think are, yeah, top of the list of importance. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's top of my list. <laughs> Do you think that's most, mostly supply chain or mostly weather or what? Definitely that train track breaking down. That screwed us over. What did that feel like? I mean, I guess there's still air transport, but as so much stuff comes is freighted um, across by rail. Did it? Did it feel? I don't know. I would have one. I, I think. I think I would have felt a bit end times, like a bit apocalyptic. <laughs> yeah, a little. Have you ever watched Doomsday Preppers? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it felt a little like that. Like we were scrambling. Like, um, you know. You have mates around town and you're like, oh, I know they've got a big tri store. Oh, I know they're sitting on like eight kilos of almonds. Come on, man. Just like throw me a bone. Yeah. Connect me with those almonds. <laughs> um, currently, like, currently, my dry store guy is the basic Anchor White Spirit Vinegar. You can't get it. Like that's just the most base, like half of it, half of it we used to clean with, you know, like. I'm having to go to the IGA and get apple cider vinegar because it's gluten-free. Like, it's insane. Yeah, it's really so interesting. And, I mean, honestly, I know it's a hassle, but I can't help but think that it's uh, a good thing that people have to be more thoughtful about ingredients that they use, about any products, including toilet paper, because, yeah, maybe we we were all using too much and we should be thinking about it. Well, that's the thing. Amidst all the, you know, the blown-up... what do you call it, hyperbole of it all, that I think it is a good thing that people are learning to, what's the word? Count your, count your blessings. You know, there is a silver lining in all of this. Justin, let's switch lanes because I know that you're keen to talk about cultural misappropriation. Um, I mean, when I say those words, how do you define them? What, what do you think cultural misappropriation in the food world actually is? Um... I think I think my experience is is quite uh, I don't know I've got a particular view only because um, you know I, I'm what you call a banana. Do you know what a banana is? You tell me. Uh, yellow on the outside, white on the inside. So I was born here, right? I've I've lived my entire life here, but um, my parents are from Malaysia, and I've you know there is so much of my cultural upbringing that is to do with Malaysia and being Chinese and for so long of my life, like probably like to the end of my twenties, like I would, I, I think I almost felt like I had to, you know, still even being, 
even being a citizen here, you know, especially working in the industry. Um, I think I think our industry is quite um, telling with all of this, but that I still feel still felt that I had to assimilate. I mean, yeah, that's. that's do you think that's part of the reason why you sort of moved in and out of working in restaurants and you know in and out of the academic sphere? Did you feel like? Mm. Not to say that I didn't feel that in um, in journalism either. Um, yes and no, I, I would say. Um, I don't know. I feel I, I I think I think what is what is probably also quite telling is that yeah. I so last year I was at a place where you know the menu was meant to be eclectic and um, you know a range of whatevers, and I you know, started putting all these Southeast Asian things on stuff that was close to, you know, my, what I would eat on the weekends, you know? Um, and I don't know. It, I think it says something that I've, that I almost like now, cause you know, I got a loose brief of Venado and it's South Mediterranean, but really like I can kind of do what I want, which is Eurocentric and, you know, Italianate and beyond. But why is it that I feel more comfortable doing that? cooking something from the Levant than, you know, stuff from Malaysia and Singapore or Thailand. Well, what do you think it is? You, you know, okay, I, I had a discussion with a chef mate the other day. And do you know, in, I think it's, you know, political economy studies or whatever, they talk about the global north and the global south. Yeah. Did, so, like, in, I think it's like... Um, if you look at an atlas, right, and there's the Northern Hemisphere and the Southern Hemisphere, it's not about where the countries are geographically, but it's where the countries sit in terms of developed country and developing and how, you know, the general discourse of uh, a news run will tend to focus on things that are happening in Europe as opposed to a country in Africa. Um, I always feel that it's that's that still exists to this day in um, in our industry. So it's that sort of it's that idea that French cuisine or you know European cuisine is is at the pinnacle, and then it's it can be the most expensive, it's the most revered, it's the most Michelin stars, it's the most hats, and then yeah, and then you know. Um, Ravioli is allowed to be more expensive than dumplings, for example. Is it all this kind of stuff? Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly. We've had this, I've had this chat so many times. It's like, what ostensibly, what is the difference between a wonton to a shulong bao to then you go to a, yeah, a ravioli or a pierogi or, you know, it's, there are so many things that people eat that are ubiquitous around the world. Everyone has their own version of it, you know, meat on a stick. Like at the end of the day, all right, is it and and this is this is this is what I this is what I'm saying. Like I, I, I do feel that depending on which way you go in terms of cooking a particular cuisine, the the conversation changes. Um I worked at a place where I had to redo the function menu, right? And so the first thing I did was take off <laughs> One of one or two of the eight items that existed that were that were crumbed in panko and put in the deep fryer. Not least, you know, every function has however many gluten frees and cel- and celiacs. And so I send this draft through, 
of the menu. And on this menu, I have taken off the arancini. And then it comes up in a meeting later, and the boss goes, Well, mate, if you don't want to make an arancini, surely there's some sort of deep-fried Asian rice ball you can do. Verbatim, this is what I got told. I lost, like, I lost my shit. Like, I actually, like, you know, I've always tried to be cool, calm, collected in those kind of situations. And I just turned right back and I was like, look, uh, to be perfectly honest, man, I've been doing this 10 years and I think that's probably the most offensive thing I've ever heard. To which I got told, I'm offended that you could be, that you could take, take it in that way. They were offended. They were offended that I could react like that. So I said, uh, that's the grace of white privilege and walked out. I kept the job because I got a, a few groveling emails apologizing. Oh, that was not my intention. Oh, that was, you know, but yeah, the, 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 that's, that, that for me is like, uh, was a, I don't know, a seminal moment for me in the last couple of years. Like just the, the fact that I had to, uh, you know, I took it, there's a, so do you know there's many types of luxa? Yeah. Yeah, and there's certain luxas that don't. So there's a there's a luxa that exists that comes from Penang. It's called Assam Luxa. It's it's got no coconut milk. Um, it's got no like it's not it's got no prawns. It's got shrimp, obviously, um, but it's all about the tamarind. It's like a fish and tamarind broth, and you get it, and it is like I like in the eye of the beholder, I think it's gorgeous, but you know, <laughs> ostensibly it, it is a dirty hot mess. But why did I feel that I had to take this dish that I love the flavor profile of, that all I wanted was people to eat this flavor profile? Why did I think that I had to make it look prettier to appeal to a white audience because of where I worked and the offering that we put out? Yeah, well, I've eaten an Assam Luxa like on the street in Penang and it's very sour and it's pretty funky and, you know, you really you really know you're eating it. It doesn't pull any punches. But I suppose is what you're saying that you know, this, there's this in kind of internalised censorship where you feel like um, you can't... Yeah, 100%, 100%. Why did I feel that, oh, I can't have all the oily bits of fish in the gravy? It has to be nice and strained and passed. And I'll, you know, I'll loosen it up with a little bit of butter and then I'll just put it on a nice fillet of fish. Like, why did I feel like I had to do that? Well, can you answer that? No, I don't think I can. <laughs> it, it's, it sat with me for a little while and I just, I, like, I, yeah, I don't know. Because it's one of the, you know, it's like at the end of the day, it's one of my favourite things to eat, as a, to eat. And it, it has been since I've been a child. Like, it means so much to me. And then I always felt like a little bit of guilt. Like, why did I have to do that? Yeah, well, I suppose, you know, in the situation you're in now, for example, I mean, you're working for you're working for other people. They've got a vision that I guess you're working with them to try to fulfil. Do you feel like you've got freedom to express yourself and try out some of these ideas um, in in the current environment at Venotto? Totally, um, totally. I actually. Um... Yeah, like, okay, so we have, it's a very small space. Like I said, we've only got 55 seats and the kitchen is actually just like a tiny corner of the bar. Um, I've got a cool room out the back, but every time I go out to get something, people think I have a prep kitchen there. I'm like, nah, nah, this is all I got. I got a domestic range hood. This is all I got. <laughs> Can't turn on the hibachi during service because it gets too hot. <laughs> um, but it, like I said, everything, I think I've, in the last couple of years, I've 
become a lot more circumspect about things and um you know i think it it, it involves the word the the operative word is tetris um i've had to do a lot of tetrising and i but i think that can only make you more um what's the word malleable creative um and and allows you to think more about contingency plans because you know if you want it, if you if you if you really want it to make something work you can you can make it work so what's a dish or two that you're really proud of um making in this tetris kitchen of yours uh okay so i don't have an oven like i have a, i don't have a like i don't have a domestic oven so i've, I've got like a do you know an uni pizza oven like the one of those portable ones yeah so i've got one i've got one of those that's hooked up to the gas line but like even on low it hits 325 degrees and it's like fuck you can't like i can't i can't roast almonds i can't roast almonds i can't um make breadcrumbs i can't braise anything really um the first time i turned it on i burnt my fringe off Caitlin turned around, my, my, my VM. She goes, what the hell is that smell? And I was just holding my hair. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I do, so I have this flatbread. Well, it's originally a pizza dough and I've taken it with me like the last four places that I've been and just keep on like altering the hydration content for like depending on what I'm cooking it with. The last place I had, I had a charcoal grill. So, you know, and then coming here to this pizza oven, I brought it up by another 10%, I think. Um, but like I said, 325 degrees is what it reads when it's on low. And this, this little flatbread, I uh, put it underneath, underneath the oven to prove for about 10 minutes. And it's like exactly where I want. And then I, and then I roll it out on the pizza stone and it's at the very right corner of the, the least hottest part of the oven. And it's just there rotating for like three minutes so it doesn't burn. <laughs> and do you do you put anything on it? Like, uh, yeah, I I serve it with a saffron labneh, um, and it looks like a soft serve cone. Yeah. Um, no, nah, I've always had a thing for flatbread. I'll always have flatbread on. But then also something for the gluten free. Yeah. So tell us about one more dish. Um, what else have I been? What else have I been doing in this in this oven? Um, Oh, I made a muscle aioli. And so I get two kilos of mussels. Well, I get my chef larger to pop two kilos of mussels and then like painstakingly clean them all. And then, and then I blitz them and then I work them into an aioli and it's kind of tasty. I put it with chips. I really, res- I really resisted on putting chips on for the owners who like, bro, chips are going to sell. I was like, yeah, I know chips are going to Fine, I'll put chips on. But then I was like, if I put chips on, I want to make a nice dip. And I think I succeeded. Nice. Well, it sounds great. It sounds like a really interesting place to explore some of the ideas that you're grappling with and, um, yeah, just really bring the joy to Perth. Um, Justin, yeah, it's been fantastic to, uh, yeah, spend half an hour in your in your brain hearing about what you're up to and how things are over there. But, yeah, thanks so much for chatting with us today on Dirty Linen. Really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. Um, it was lovely to meet you and lovely to chat. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. 
If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you.